like a warning that you're you're being encroached upon. So my yeah, so welcome to uh, the New World Brasscast, where we ask the the intense questions like, "Is Amy that small, or is her coffee that big?" Look at this thing. Look at this mug yeah, here. <laughs> Next to my head for reference, it's it's huge. Oh, look at that lovely that. word that's written on it, though. Look at that lovely word. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is how much coffee I drink in the morning. No, no joke. It's the size of my head. Yeah, but the problem is, is English people drink tea. That's why their teeth are bad. I do, I do drink a lot of tea, too. Yeah, so do I. Or did I? You've got to kind of change. <laughs> so with me today, of course, is our you know normal host, Tony and Amy. We have been apart for some time now. It's nice to see you all. But we're joined by Simon. And Simon, for those of you who might not know you, you want to give a quick like TLDR explanation of who you are, what you do, and oh. why we might have you here? Sure, no problem. I'm a good-looking, handsome Englishman. Um, that's the first thing you need to know about me. <laughs> it was a um, clickbait. Yeah, it was the title. I needed not, him on the thumbnail. Do, I'm not going to do any advertising because I've been told I can't advertise, so I won't advertise at all, as you can see there. Um, I'm actually the sole distributor uh, for Geneva Instruments. Geneva Instruments are played by Black Dyke Mills and a lot of the professionals around the world. Um, we launched on the 1st of December. I've sold all my stock for December. I've sold all my stock for January. You seem to be very, very enthused by our instruments and so you should be um they're fine quality they're handmade and um they're good there you go how about that is that good enough did you want more do you want me to well go i think you, you know and well i did i'm mean, going to elaborate on it so simon has come and uh hung out with the tampa brass band he sat in for rehearsal and brought a couple horns and i think like what we appreciated about like we'll call it the sales pitch even though it wasn't at all was like you literally showed up introduced yourself you're right down the road from us so it made sense you know you're like a couple hour drive but you showed up you said hi here's a couple of horns please try them if you want if you have questions let me know here's my email and moved on with it like there wasn't you know the hovering around or trying to talk about how this is better than that or anything like that and uh yeah. and I, I think that is a that will go a long way here when we're in a place where i feel like people are trying to push their their instruments quite heavily and quite heavy-handed sometimes to be honest with you aaron um the number one priority believe it or not for me is i want to make more friends in the brass band industry because um i came out of it quite a few years ago i turned professional and i and i'm a trumpet player so you know obviously that doesn't fit with brass banding as you discovered when i actually played cornet on the uh, front bench and told me i was rather loud um <laughs> he really was i was i happened to be conducting this go and it was just like bam <laughs> <laughs> We put him on the on the bench, but he he was in like like the armpit chair, you know, before the <laughs> flugel of the horn, and he was just pointed directly at me. <laughs> I was like, "Good lord!" <laughs> I should have given you prior warning. <laughs> it was great. It was great though, because like my my guys, you know, they needed to hear how loud that could still sound, but still be a cornet sound, as opposed to transferring into marching band trumpet sound, which happens with a lot of the North American bands, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, the compliment there, I suppose, was you did say I did have a cornet sound, which is, a, uh, I suppose that's one thing anyway. Um, but no, I, I'm not a believer in sales pitches. I'm not a believer in hard sell. I don't want to walk out the door with it with, with orders. And I'm looking at it from that point, point of view because I'm very much of a believer that um, Geneva Instruments won't be for everybody. Um, and the reason they won't be for any everybody is that you're used to certain things about your instrument. Um, I used to play an old trumpet. I then progressed to playing a tailor, um, and I played tailor for years. My old trumpet had a leaky third valve. I loved it because it actually mainly gave a wisp when I played through. You can't replace that sort of thing. Now, it's a differential sound. It's not like you would buy 
but I loved it. And and there are people that have played instrument for years, and they sound fantastic, and they shouldn't change, but they should try, and they should at least know what the alternative is. Um, the Geneva range are very easy blowing. That's quite an important factor. They're very in tune. They've concentrated. It's, it's basically the metals that they've actually used that keep it in tune, but also make it project fairly well as well. Um, there's a lot of things that people should know about them. But to sell them, no. I'd much rather say, here I am. This is what I do. Come and talk to me if you want to. And my name's Simon. That's the most important thing for me. And how long you been, so give us a little bit, because you played with bands over there and all that sort of a thing, but how long you mm-hmm. been here in the States? 14 years. But you've been playing years. trumpet for the most part, and you do mostly like commercial stuff. Like, didn't you just play with like, I don't know, like, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Chicago, or a group like that just now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I play with a few of your, your stars there. What, what I do, actually, is the same as I did in, U, in the UK. Um, I used to have a good friend, a guy called Derek Watkins in the UK, a trumpet player. Um, Derek Watkins is kind of the number one. He's a bit he's a bit like your Wayne Bergeron over here. Um, he's passed away now, sadly. Um, his history, he played on all the James Bond films, for example, this sort of thing. Um as that has happens with a number one person, they can't do everything. So he used, he used to farm stuff out to me. Um, it wasn't my full-time job. Um, so I just took what I could. And I played with lots of different famous people, which is wonderful. Once, twice, three times, this sort of thing. Um, when I came over here, I actually wasn't playing. Got picked up by someone and did a bit of playing. Then, as I say, I got picked up by this touring Chicago tribute band that is rather large and do like 80 gigs a year. And all of a sudden, I'm on a plane all the time. But it's fun. It's a fun. If you're a musician, you'll understand. If you're not a musician, you won't understand any of this. <laughs> I think the. Uh, I was gonna say. I think the people who are listening, I, uh, who are not musicians, like uh, we we do always joke about. Like we, we got to get you know. There's just a fraternal order of uh, metal working people who might end up popping into this <laughs> podcast because they thought they've oh finally we have some representation. Somebody's talking <laughs> about how to solder. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I'm not going to be much help because I know absolutely no idea how you solder, no how do you make it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a, technical questions that way. So have you been down in Florida the whole time you've been here? Yes, I have. Yeah, so that's and so we were, you know, we were we were having like a little bit of a conversation, and it, what's really interesting, and I think is kind of like one of we'll say problems, um, uh, sure, about the North American brass banding scene is like you were here for a while. Like my mm. and like my bands existed for we're going on our fifth year, mm. and you're you're two hours down the road. I had no idea we existed. Never knew that. I honestly didn't think there was a brass banding world around here because obviously, it's not an advertised or promoted thing. It's not like they're not trying to sell anything. So it was only when I kind of got approached to the, to look at Geneva and thought, well, you know, can't imagine this being any good. Let's do a bit of research, and suddenly got up up like four hundred brass band names that I suddenly thought, well, okay. There is. I'm just in the wrong area. Um, <laughs> but then, to be fair, in in the UK, there are bands in the south of England, nowhere near as there are in the north of England. It's mainly a north of England thing, um, more than anything else. I would say probably 80% of the bands are the north part of the UK. Yeah, and, and because the United States is so big, mm. all the bands are spread out. You know, that geography is really the biggest problem here. And that's mm. where I was going with that is like we're in the same state, right? And Tampa's two hours away from him, mm. right? And we're probably probably the closest brass band to you. 
Oh, uh, with a matching team. Yeah, I think you are. Because yeah. uh, Orlando's just a little bit further away from you, and then we've got Orchid City and, and Palm Beach mm-hmm. area. But it's it's like, yeah, you're, we're in the same state, but you're still two and a half-ish yeah. hours away from the nearest brass band rehearsal. You know, which would take you halfway up of England, halfway up England, if you were in our country. You'd unless you're in, unless you're in Amy's area where you're in Ohio, and I can hit a baseball to the nearest brass band. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, that's Dr. Drosty's impact for you. You know, there, yeah. there, there are, there are three brass bands in the Dublin. Well, three, yeah, four-ish, if you mm-hmm. consider the historic brass band in the Dublin system alone. And then there's uh, Central Ohio Brass Band and Brass Band of Columbus. So, so yeah, yeah we got a lot. <laughs> but then, of course, you've also got on top of that over here, which is another thing I didn't realize. Um, my background from from when I was a child growing up was in the Salvation Army. That's how I, I became involved in, in, in banding. Um, and down here in, in Florida, um, the Salvation Army is more of a charity than it is a church. Um, you don't really see a great. You do. There are churches, um, but mainly, you know, it's it's not directed that sort of way. All you see is charity shops. You don't see any brass bands either. So I thought initially, or for fourteen years, let's put it that way, that there wasn't many Salvation Army bands. Um, well, as you go north again. It changes. Um, there's a quite a lot of Salvation Army bands. Um, there's, I was going to say, uh, yeah, the Clearwater Band, the Clearwater Corps is probably the largest one in the southeast outside of Atlanta. Mm. Right. And that's, you know, but that's, a, you know, two and a half hour away from you. And then yeah. the, but, but the church down the road from me, the Tampa Corps, has mm-hmm. a pretty large band. They have about 20 in their in their band. Oh, which right. is, yeah. And so it's 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 interesting. They have a whole conservatory just for Florida as well. Mm. And yeah. South Florida has a lot of them, too. But again, you can live in the state and be like in the know of these things and have no idea that they're happening around you. You're absolutely right. You're kind of, you're in your own bubble and you tend to stay in your own bubble. Um, the only reason I see a little bit more is because obviously I travel around, but without being funny, I get on a plane, I drive along, you know, the equivalent of the I-75, I end up where I am and then I fly back out again. So I don't really see anywhere. I, I travel lots of places, but I don't see those places. Um, just the events where we play. That's something that I feel like us musicians get a lot. It's like, everybody's like, how's Huntsville? I'm like, the music center's great. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the food around it is. Sorry, I interrupted you. What was up? No, I was just saying that I think that that, that this huge country influences how we interact within our brass band, because before mm. we, before we pressed record, Simon was telling us about how, you know, if, uh, the, if you, if you saw someone in another brass band, you could kind of dangle a carrot and see if you could attract them over to your brass band. Mm. Whereas here in, in most places, that is the brass band. Mm. <laughs> if you're fortunate <laughs> enough to live near a brass band, that is, that is your brass band. And so I think around here, um, you, you have your players and, and a lot of the time, if they're not playing to a certain standard, well, mm-hmm. then someone's going to have to start giving them lessons or playing duets before rehearsal, or you're going to have yeah. to start working with them to increase that that uh, ability because this is your person, especially with tenor horns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the number of tenor <laughs> horn players in the U.S. is pretty. The unsung heroes of the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then... If you turn that round, as I say, in the UK, the difference in the UK is if a principal cornet player isn't performing and they're not 
they're not winning and he's not getting picked out as the soloist or something like that, his head's on the chopping block. Um, they'll find someone else. They're quite ruthless. You know, the band comes first. The people in the band, they're just in the band. Um, you know, if they want a, a better principal player and they can get one, they'll take him out and put someone else in. Um, it's pretty hard. Um, I mean, to be fair, you know, the top bands like Dyke, you know, you've had Richard Marshall has been there for many, many years. Phil, Phil McCann before him was, was many, many years. Um, they are the top of the top and they've had to work hard to stay there. I mean, Richard Marshall practices and practices and practices. Um, and unbelievably, I mean, I'm not being funny, but I don't think I could practice as much as he does. He's like two or three hours a day. Now, we all talk about it and we all say, oh, that's what we need. None of us do it um, because, we, number one, we've got lives. You know, you just can't do it. But this guy, you know, to keep there, that's what he has to do. It's tough. Yeah, I tell you what, I don't like, a, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm conducting this cycle. And this is mm-hmm. this is like the first time I haven't done it. And uh, I don't, I don't, I like the conducting. There's nothing about the conducting I dislike, but I don't like the fact that like, oh yeah, I don't practice as much because I don't have the pressure of being like, on the top of my A game because I don't sit yeah. in the band on Tuesdays, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't have that. And so like, I'm practicing to like maintain whatever I need to do, whatever jobs I need to do, whatever. But like, there's something about the brass band that I'm like, no, I need to, especially because like I organize the group. So it's like, I need to be the best one in here because I can't talk smack about yeah. anybody else if I'm not yeah. on top of my stuff. And now that I'm waving the arms, I don't have to do that, you know, for this one around. So I'm very much looking forward to getting into Napa season and, and rehearsing in my chair again. Well, there's also some uh, something there about, you know, if you're standing in front of the band and you're still the best player in the band, you know, there's there's something to be said for that, too. There's another problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you're the next Nick Childs. I mean, let's face it. The Childs brothers were my era. You know, they were the yeah. best euphonium players in the world. In fact, yeah. the funny part from my point of view is I came out of banding um, when they were on the top. And, you know, when I kind of got back interested a year ago and found out that the, the, the son was a better player than the father um, in the Child Brothers, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, hold on a moment, who was the son? Um, didn't even know him. Um, and then, as I say, we, we've got, as you probably know, we've got Glenn Van Loy, um, who's uh, one of our uh, performing artists. And I listened to the guy and I think, that was impossible on euphonium when I was on euphonium. You know, that's a long, long time ago. You can't play that. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, each generation gets better. Oh, it does. Absolutely. Every generation gets better. Mm. But then some of that also, and I'm going to throw it in now, are the instruments as well. Um, you know, you couldn't do that on a an old Sovereign or an old Sterling, which was the competition on the days going back to 20 years ago. Um, but nowadays, the instruments are out there. You know, the intonation is concentrated on. It works, you know. It does. You couldn't do that on an old euphonium. You can. It wouldn't work. Yeah, I think I've had this conversation with Amy before too. Like where we had, you know, when we talk about when we were in undergrad, there was like two euphonium brands, maybe three, mm. if you're being yep. fish. And now there's like options. You know, there's a lot. You go to a, you go to these any of these regionals, and there's like booths of all these different brands and whatever, and different varying price options and what you get and all that sort of thing. And it used to be like. Literally, because I, I grew up in Virginia, so it was like, no, there's only Wilson. That is the only thing that exists. There's nothing else mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of cool that we're in a place where not only are there higher quality, but also varieties mm-hmm. to choose yeah. from and all that sort of a thing. It's good. And, and competition's good for the manufacturer as well. Um, I'm a firm believer in competition because um, if competition was as important, we wouldn't look to improve the instruments. Um, okay, we feel we've improved with the Cardinal range. You know, we've, we've brought things in 
that helped the intonation. We bought, you know, a, a trigger for a tuning slide on a cornet, which used to be in years ago. Now it's back in. Well, you think about it logically, you don't really need a trigger on third and first if you've got a tuning slide trigger anyway. Um, and if it's easy to operate as well. One of the problems, I mean, my trumpet, for example, you know, I've got the old fashioned, you know, you try and you try and use your third, third trigger, which you push out and then you push back it. It's not physically possible. You're never going to do it. Um, I don't know why they even bother putting them on there, to be perfectly honest with you. But a trigger where you just pull it in. Yeah. OK, that's easy. You do it. It makes it work. I think I think that that helps people who I have. I have tiny hands. Uh, and so when I play cornet in my my lessons with students and stuff, I literally I can't I can't push out that uh, that it's not possible, is it? No. And to be honest with you, the other problem you have as well is, is um, OK, for somebody that is very, very good and maintains their instrument absolutely beautifully, washes it after every performance, oils it, does everything that that's fine. The majority of us. Yeah, OK. I play all the time. How often do I wash my instrument? Not enough. Um, probably don't practice it enough, but there you go. Um, and, you know, it, it's very hard. Now, by having a sprung loaded that works it, it'll still operate. You push it out in the middle of a, a performance and you're struggling to get it back in again. Um, you're done. <laughs> you know, we keep going, you know, we keep talking about the like how often everybody's practicing and like doing all that sort of a thing. And that's like, you know, that's another interesting part of the the brass band world is like could we, I was talking about it. uh on one of the podcasts but it used to be that like the solo competitions were like a lot of the community cats mm-hmm. right and at, at north at, at nava and now you've got you know doctors and full tenured professors who are out there winning these things mm-hmm. and doing these things and like that's where our brass bands are is you have like doctors and tubas sitting beside guys who like are dentists and play cornet on tuesday nights and like everything in between yeah. And, and but we hold the level of performance to the exact same for everyone yeah. as best we can. Um, and um, it that's I, I don't know if that's a here thing or if that's kind of an everywhere thing because the, the amateur of it changes it. No, it, it is everywhere. The, the, if you're in championship section, a little bit different. If you're my first section, second or third in the UK, it's community still. Um, I always used to say one of the most wonderful things about playing in a brass band is you could have a young girl who's 15 years of age playing second horn. You can have a guy who's 75 years of age sitting on first horn. They're friends um, because there's a bond that creates between them and musicians blonde. And, you know, they respect each other. They know each other. They talk to each other. Um you wouldn't see that in normal life. Why would a 15-year-old talk to a 75-year-old? They wouldn't. Um, it wouldn't be seen as right either these days. But, I mean, in a band, no, it's quite nice, actually, because that forms. And, I mean, you all know you all know when you go to a competition and you do well at the competition, the excitement goes through the whole of the band. You can't beat that sort of thing. You really can't. It's, it's, it's like being on the stage and having the big round of applause. Um, we, don't, we all live for it. That's what it is. And that 15 year old will see that 75 year old or whatever. And, and at some place in her mind will be when I'm older, I can still play. You got it. I think one of the biggest problems in the U S is kids graduate from high school. They put their, their instrument in the case and they don't take it back out again. Mm. But if they, if they're exposed to, uh, to, older adults who are having fun playing and still pushing themselves that mm-hmm. that kind of puts that thought in their head 
and hopefully it activates later. I think it does. I think people in brass banding, um, it's not just the playing that keeps you in there. It is the community spirit that keeps you in there. Um, I used to I used to go to rehearsals twice a week. Um, and a lot of a lot of my friends who weren't in brass banding said, why on earth do you go there? You give up two evenings a week. I said, no, I don't give up two evenings a week. I look forward to two evenings a week. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. When you're coming up to contesting, you're on test pieces. Um and you're doing sectional rehearsals and that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. That's not so much fun. It's tough. You've got to do it. And especially if you've got your part right and the other part in the section maybe haven't, then that's frustrating and that can be hard work. But, you know, for me, you play, a, you know, let's go back a few years, you play something like Connotations um, and, you know, you get to the, you get to what, what I call the movie stage bit where you get the big, big theme running through and you know the bases are powerful and the sopranos going over the top and you've got the full power if there isn't a tear in your eye then you shouldn't be in the band <laughs> that's that's what gets you that that's the bit that keeps you in there um it's that feeling and the collective feeling of playing together um not being the one person that's playing a solo it's the collective sound that a brass band makes um coming back over here um when I first got involved with Geneva and, and I and I went to visit a brass band rehearsal, it's probably the first time I'd been to one, for probably the best part of maybe 18, 19 years. Um, and I sat and like always, they, they played a, um, a hymn tune to start with. And um, I choked up, you know, do you want to say a few words? Uh, not now. Um, <laughs> because, you know, you kind of sit there and you think, yeah, OK, I've missed this. You don't realise it. Um <laughs> And, and that's another thing as well, which is interesting in brass banding. People don't realize you can judge a brass band quality by the way they play at him, Gene. Um, you, you, can, you can have every contest piece you want. Um, we can all learn, learn the fast bits. We can all play a beautiful solo if we need to and everything like that. But a hymn tune, um, it's got a way of being played, which is correct. And if you get it right, any hymn tune sounds fantastic. Um, to me, that that's the most deciding factor, um, and I'm glad you've you've carried on the tradition that we have in the UK. Um, you start with a hymn tune um, before you go into your rehearsal, and I think it's important because it brings everyone down to the right sort of level. Um, and you know, you, you then start the same level going forwards. Um, test pieces, um, yeah, I mean, without being funny, some of them are unbelievably hard now. Um, as I say, when I came out. What, what, what is it? Year of the Dragon was, was quite in there. Um, essence of Time. Um, that's the kind of where I came out of brass banding. I come back in now and I look at some of these test pieces and listen to them. And I think I wouldn't even have a hope. I wouldn't even have a hope for playing that, surely. Uh, but a lot of it is you have, you can play it. But the idea of a test piece is you've got to practice hard to get it right. And that's the difference there is. If you don't practice hard and you don't get it right, no, you can't play it. But if you practice hard, you will get it right. It is there. It's all under your fingers. you just got to kind of get it in your head and on your fingers. Yeah. yeah. I, also, I also think it's yeah. it's interesting that, you know, when, in the formation of NAVA back in the 80s, it was a challenge to get over to England and to hear brass bands and to get information about how to actually you know, do brass banding the way that, that it's done in England. Now, mm. that because of the internet and how often people travel, there's regularly people from, from over there coming to here. Oh, and yeah. Clinics and working with people and people going over there and studying. And, you know, so it's, you know, there's more 
authenticity in the brass band mu- movement here now than there ever was. Oh, I believe that. that and I think that's part of the reason why, you know, I think if you go back 30 years, probably weren't that many brass bands that were playing hymn tunes to start every rehearsal. And mm. now just about everybody probably does it. If they know what they're doing, they certainly are. Yeah, yeah. And it is noticeable. I mean, we went through an era in the UK, um, and you probably went the same over here. And all of a sudden, we were playing um, We were playing for the public. We were playing arrangements. Um, we might play the arrangement of Star Wars, or we played the arrangement of, you know, and that's that's what was becoming all the time. It was that sort of thing. Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice to do that once in a while. Um, there were orchestral pieces which were being put into, you know, so a brass band could pay them. And some of them worked. Some of them didn't work. Um, but that was the direction it was actually going. Now, over this probably the last, I would say, 20 years, it's 10 years more than there, there are more brass band composers um, and that is what they do. Um, and to me, it makes a difference because the instruments that they've got to use, they're using them as opposed to, I'll use a soprano to cover a violin piece. All right. That, it's far, far better. Um, and the sound is better. I mean, as I say, to me, the test pieces that have a, a theme in them, a melody in them, that's what I like because I think when you get to that part, the band then just soaks into it, and that's when you get a real feel of a brass band. Okay, then he goes off to, you know, variations, um, which has got to be in a test piece. Um, but a lot of people are now writing that sort of way, um, and I think it works. Um, it really does. Um, you know, you've got some high-end people there. You know, it was Sparks before, and you know, you've got Peter Graham, who does a lot. Um, you've got Paul Lovett. You know, they're, they're, their music is brass band music it's not orchestral that's been brought in it's not you know something that's uh, at the top of the level on a movie that they've thought well that'd be good let's bring them for that it's exciting to play but we really want the kind of the hardcore brass banding and you're doing that over here because a lot of what i've heard so far over here is proper brass band music one of the nice things that we have <clears throat> here in north america is we have a very strong um wind band tradition mm. Um, and so a lot of the brass band pieces can live on further or go beyond because it's yep. interesting. I feel like wind band does not go into or uh, does not go into brass band very well. Like there's a we all we've all played some bad arrangement of like first suite. That's like fine, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's not nearly as good as in the wind band version. But there are brass band goes into wind band. Well, it goes the mm-hmm. other way pretty well. I mean, uh, to be frank with you, I find that I enjoy the hymn of the highlands for wind band, the wind band arrangement for it. I enjoy it a little bit more than the brass band a lot of the times, depending mm-hmm. on the band that's playing it. <laughs> I wouldn't say mm-hmm. the same thing for music this year, though. Um, but it can or, live on. And then you have composers like Jim Kernow, who, you mm-hmm. know, know how to compose for younger age people because of their involvement yeah. in the Salvation Army. So his grade ones are actually good music. There's not just like the normal hokey middle school band stuff that you have to take to festival because that's your seventh grade band. Yeah. His stuff is actually like has a theme and like goes well and he knows what a tuba can do. Unlike mm. most of the people who come out with composition degrees, um, you know, and, and so yeah, I think we have we're kind of lucky in that way that we have that. And also, it seems like with that with that transcription stuff, I mean, when band started as like Sousa's marches were just encores for gigantic transcriptions. Mm hmm. You know, and so that's how that evolved and, and moved. And we're talking about the American composer. And so that 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 DNA is there in the same way that we enjoy mm. it. Yeah. 
Well, so you also, I, oh, sorry, after you. Well, I was just going to say that I think, I think that that in the U.S. at least, our our composers who haven't been involved in, in the brass band, they don't know what tuba and euphonium can do. Um, there have been studies where where people have looked through like, like orchestration books, mm-hmm. and you can trace like the you know when they give the information about the range and how you how you orchestrate for those instruments and how you handle them you can trace those just back to earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier mm. orchestration books and there and it doesn't change no one went through as technology got better yeah. and said actually we've expanded this compensating system this extra valve <laughs> has done this <laughs> and and you know, now you can, you can orchestrate it. And, and so for however long they've been saying basically like something like euphonium is a new instrument. I still seen that euphonium <laughs> is a, is a brand, what brand point, spanking new instrument. <laughs> at what point does it cease to be new? How many years in the past for it to not be new? I don't know. It was, it was invented around the same time as anesthesia. So, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think well, it also has the same problem of uh, the first concerto for the instrument, which actually isn't the first concerto for the instrument, was premiered by a brass band, not an orchestra. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's always a problem as well. Yeah, just yeah. If you if you like, uh, you know, stepbrother syndrome, play the euphonium. You know, in in, mm-hmm. in North America, I mean, heck, I we had um our one of our theory faculty at my university and he's brilliant. He's really, really good. Um, he got, he's had wind band commissions before and the band director for this particular one asked him to write a treble clef euphonium part because one of his kids, you know, needs it. And he's like, he had a message being go, how do I do that? We're doctorate in, in orchestration. I had no idea. He's like, yeah, there's no, and he literally said, he was like, yeah, there's not a lot of stuff on your instrument in the books. And I was like, I hear yep. that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you find I'll tell you something you've got more over over here. Um, in the UK, a brass band is a brass band. Hornets go and do something. Euphonium goes and does something. That's about it. Um, over here, you you have a low-end community, I want to call it. Um, you have a lot of tuba recitals. You have a lot of – everything's about the low-end tuba and euphonium from that point of view. I mean, for us over in the UK – I don't know what it was. At the early '80s, we had Sykes do Shardus um, on a on a on a an E flat bass tuba uh, over there, and that was the first time anyone had played anything other than um 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 really over in the UK. Um, so for everyone, it was uh, wow, this guy's amazing. Look at the notes he's playing. A tuba can do that, um, and it's progressed from there. Over here, I mean, I've listened to some of the stuff over here. It's phenomenal. It really is. Um, and you have tuba events um you have you know i've been invited to quite a few uh, for geneva we'll actually come to some competitions which are actually tuba competitions um and and to us over in in england the uk that's weird uh, that 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 doesn't happen um it's like well you're taking the low end of a section and you're making it into soloists well where's that come from where's really or bands we have we have two ensemble two B euphonium ensembles or bands. Yeah, mm. like they're Gil, Gil Ar- Arnold Jacobs, is like the queen of arrangements for yeah. For yeah. Arnold Jacobs used to say respect goes in score order, which <laughs> <laughs> which uh, you know which is kind of funny because in an orchestral score the strings are at the bottom, so I don't, I don't know how how that really goes because they're usually the the ones that are respecting in score order, um, but it seems like. 
like what you're saying is in England is that the the bottom doesn't fight to get out of the bottom. And no, absolutely. Either, no. The 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 tuba tuba players have said, well, we're going to create our own industry. We're going to create our own. We want to make our own our our own way here. You know, and when when tuba ensembles started to come into play in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, it like there's not a university that doesn't have a tuba euphonium ensemble, I don't mm. think. No, you know, and, so. and that's what I'm finding out. Um, and as I say, it does sound good. Um, I think, to be fair, I think a lot of good for about 20 minutes, and then you're like, okay, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. some trouble sounding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going to IET. Going to Adams Festival IET and then the Georgia Brass Band came in and I just remember hearing the tuning note and hearing cornets and being like, oh, thank God. Because it was the first thing that wasn't a two-bar euphonium for like four days straight. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I love tugboat music as much as the next person, but you're right. It, it becomes like, eat, it's like eating dark chocolate cake after a while. You only do so much. <laughs> but yeah, you're right, Tony. No, it's kind of like, you have that like, you can have two mentalities of it. You can have the like, oh, well, this is this is what we do, you know, and this is how we do it. Or you can have people like, I'm going to show you otherwise, you know, and. And, um, and, and as you say, that's good for a period of time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like going to the gym once it was really, really good after that. Mm, yeah, OK. <laughs> I've never had that. I've never had that. People, you know, people say that like they have the like, oh, I feel so much better after. Nope. Not, no, never. No, no never. Do you know what the best machine in the gym is? It's the one that you get the chocolate bars out of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Speaking of tube events, Amy and I get to go to two of them together. Yeah, we noticed that the um, that the what is that? Surtech Southeast Surtech. Yeah, Surtech and, and Murtech. I love saying that Murtech uh, Midwest um, are one week apart from each other and one is in Tennessee and one is in Ohio. Mm. So, so they're what, what a grand total of what four hours away from each other. Um, I don't know. I haven't done the math, I but, either. Um, but they're supposed to represent completely different regions of the, of the country. And they're like <laughs> Tennessee, middle Tennessee. Is that right? I don't remember. There are two, I think it's middle there are two of them that are in Tennessee. I'll look um, it up. So <laughs> yeah. So we're going to, we're going to play, um, we're going to play at one, a combined recital, and then we're going to have an epic week hanging out uh, at Casa de Bliss. And um, then we're going to go up to um, Bowling Green and do another uh, combined recital that it, I'm I, I'm switching out uh, my piece in, in Tennessee. I'll be playing uh, Lucy Pankhurst Luminaries um, and in in. Um, and at Bowling Green, I'm going to have a premiere. So I, I literally can't premiere it <laughs> <laughs> until until that one. Um, so it's pretty cool. Um, it's by Matthew Kennedy. Um, and I'm looking up the, the title. It's it's at this point, it's called First. Um, so it's going to be about um, being the first in your family to to accomplish something, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, being the first to go to college or being the first to, um, go into, you know, whatever field or the first, maybe you're an immigrant family and you're the first to get out there really as a, you know, and, and feel like you identify more with, with a different culture or something like that, but it's going to be called first, we think. Um, 
And I just got my first, I got my first <laughs> copy. <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, I got my first copy yesterday <laughs> to, to see kind of how it's shaping up and it's going to be pretty cool. Mm. Middle That's Tennessee State. Fun. Is where is that? Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So yeah, I'm not changing one pieces. I'm not that bougie. One of the problems we found at the present moment. I'm trying to get round to see as many brass bands as I can, obviously, because you know that's the way um, I see it as the way forward. To be perfectly honest with you, um, but one of the biggest problems I have more than anything else is, is, is what, what you were saying earlier on. Um, is understanding how large America actually is. Um, I mean, I looked the other day, we're doing NAM this year, um, and NAM is in Anaheim. And obviously, I'm right down in Naples in Florida. And the first thing, you know, looking on the map, I thought, well, you know, I could drive it, you know, because um, I do I want to ship, um, you know, two pallets of uh, exhibition stand over there. I might as well drive it and, you know, tow it or even hire an RV. And then you kind of sit down and you work it out and you you, you put it into Google and you work out how long it's going to take two days continuous of driving. And you suddenly think, yeah, that's not such a clue idea, really. <laughs> it's literally the opposite end of the country, more or less. You look what you're going to drive through and you think there's nothing really exciting there that I could stop at. <laughs> there's no halfway uh, that kind of excites me that much. <laughs> uh, once you get past Dallas, there's nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what i looked at and i thought you know i don't think i'll be doing that <laughs> i used to i used to think it was hilarious when i i lived in manchester for a bit and i had a roommate a flatmate who uh lived up in oh i think it was i think he was up in in glasgow but mm-hmm. he would like get he would like wake up early and he would be like prepared he'd have a good breakfast <laughs> he'd get like ready to go and he's like, I'm driving home today. Like, I need to make sure I'm rested and have a good meal and I'm ready to go. And and meanwhile, like, I have friends who will travel from the Akron, Ohio area down to Columbus two and a half hours just to play a gig. <laughs> yeah, just think nothing of it. Uh, that, that, that's the other thing which became strange. You, you can drive the full length of the UK in six hours. So you can drive right from the bottom all the way to the top in six hours um so then you start putting that in over here from where i am and i'm not going to really get far i'll be in georgia that's about it i think yeah i was gonna say you'll hit valdosta from where you're at about yeah, that's about, <laughs> about as good as it actually gets and then you kind of work the next bit out you think oh my god <laughs> it's yeah, a long, long atlanta way. yeah, oh, yeah. Atlanta. <laughs> atlanta or dc that's my six hour range you can you can drive from from one side from like the bottom left of Ohio to the top right in Ohio for that amount of time. Because I remember I used to do a job that I had to travel a bunch for, so I was in a different city in Ohio each each week, and and it was based out of Columbus because mm-hmm. from that point in any direction they could be to us if there was an emergency in three hours. Mm-hmm. So you can go from like any tip to any tip of Ohio. Yeah. Six hours probably. North, yeah, Florida, Florida has the North Carolina tip to tip is like nine to ten hours. Yeah, mm. Florida has the interesting, it has the weird part of like from bottom to top, it's like 14 to 15 yeah. hours of a drive. Mm. To go across it is like three. Yeah. yeah. But there's only like four roads that actually go across Florida. So you yeah. have to get to one of them to go across. Because mm-hmm. like if you ever look at the uh, like the space station photos of the United States of America, you only see lights in Florida around the peninsula. You don't see anything dead center except for Disney. 
<laughs> there's, there's nothing to go there for <laughs> yeah alligators pretty much it you know and just I mean, you know some people who don't know what year it is anymore because they lived out there that long yeah absolutely. <laughs> they've been lost for years <laughs> but, and you know but what i think is something that i've just kind of you know because you and i came into communication and then i've kind of watched you like it was after you had worked with five lakes and then you came and worked with our band and, or worked came and introduced yourself and, um, and it was so it was so refreshing to see because a lot of times what brands will do if they have any international presence whatsoever when they come over to North America is they'll try to break into more or less the wind band market or anything like that. And so it was really refreshing to see a brass band brand come over here and go after brass bands. And well, and of course, you're you're, you're going to you would sell instruments to a wind band or anything like that. But like hmm. to have that we're staying here we want to have the conversations with these people and all that sort of thing especially because we feel so like looked down upon academically mm -hmm. in brass band world mm -hmm. to have that recognition is, is actually i think refreshing see the thing is that's the way the brand has built itself um i mean when you've got black dyke as one of your you know your, your performing artists a band um and we've got that sort of thing you, we've got a good starting point there you know whether someone likes our instrument or doesn't like our instrument, if they're in brass banding, they know who Black Dyke, the Black Dyke Band is, or Black Dyke Mills, as most of can't remember. Um, and because of that, they want to know more. Um, now, the nice part from my point of view is, once I put an instrument in front of them um, and they try it, most people like it. Um, and that gives us a good starting point to actually go. So wind bands, I don't know, I don't even know a good wind band i have no knowledge of wind bands at all um and i'm sure they're fantastic but i don't know them um and to me do i like the sound of a bassoon no um what what are clarinets used for stirring paint it's about the only thing i can think they're useful for i don't particularly like the sound of a clarinet <laughs> it's something that was played at school by someone who couldn't play a brass instrument um <laughs> That's my theory of it. Now, someone's going to give me a big hiding for this, and I'm sure I'm going to get something come through and say, you're horrible. And I probably am. But in all reality, brass banding collectively, to me, um, is what a band should sound like. And they're all the same sort of instrument. You know, they're all brass instruments. Um, when you start going through, to me, a wind band is on the verge of an orchestra. Um that's where it's it's going, as it were. Um, and if it ever expanded beyond what it does now, that's where it would expand to. Um, and I love an orchestra, but the orchestra is the end result. And a brass band to me is the beginning result. And I think the wind band is what's in the middle. Um, and a lot of people have favoured that and it stayed there. And I think, you know, I'm sure it's very good. And I'm sure if I go and listen to some wind bands, I'll have that, that sort of thing. But there's no point sending someone over here to... Um, sell Geneva instruments to wind bands when he really hasn't got a clue much about wind bands. And that's truth in this. Well, it's, and it's a smart idea. Like you said, like if you mention to, to a certain person, if you mention black Dyke, that's a great selling point. And to a mm. lot of people, they have here, they have no idea. Right. And this, <laughs> so you can get a really good read on the, on your, you know, potential customer. If you're like, yeah, so black Dyke plays on our instruments. They'll go, Oh, okay. Like if mm. they'll understand right away. And if they don't, it's like, you're probably not, you're probably not in the yeah. market for a cornet anyway. No, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I, I, it was quite interesting from my point of view because um, obviously we're, we're throwing stuff out on social media at the present moment on you know Instagram and Facebook and everything you can. Um, and the first thing I, I that woke me up a little bit over here is, you know, Glenn Van Loy, I didn't know until I met him. Nice guy, actually. Um, but I didn't know anything about him. Um, I was that far detached from the brass band world for quite a few years. Um, 
And, you know, he was our performing artist. Great. Fantastic. Nice to meet you. That's about all I knew. So I put him on one of our um, Instagram um, posts out there. Now, bear in mind, at the time, I think we had two followers. It was literally kind of the second one we did. We got over 900 hits on that. And within a day, we were up to 300 followers. And I'm kind of thinking, right, OK, well, this guy's quite well appreciated. People like him. And where I've spoken to people that have any knowledge on euphoniums or or tubers or whatever, like that, the man's name is Gold. Um, so it's things like that which I've had to kind of come back and learn um, to go forward. To run a company, I've run distribution companies, I've owned engineering companies. I know I've owned quite a few different companies. I know the business from the business point of view, um, selling ice cream to the Eskimos, as it were. I could do that bit. That bit's okay. But when it comes to actually the product, I've had to kind of relearn again. I might be able to play it, but I've had to relearn a lot of things which have changed as well over the period of time. As I say, I go back to Sovereign Euphoniums. That was it. Um, that was kind of the number one. Um, things have changed an awful lot. Um, and as you say, there's a lot more brands out. There's a lot more competition uh, and a lot more artisan brands as well. You know, you especially on trumpet more than anything else. Um, there's a lot of um, good quality stuff out there. It's nice to see as well. Good competition. So with our, we got, we've got uh, a few moments left and, you know, Simon, you're trying to like, like you were saying, you're trying to break back into the brass band scene. You're doing it on an entire different continent, much more, <laughs> more or less. So, <laughs> but I think you have, you know, you have the brass band guy in the state of Florida here, and then you have two of the most, you know, most informed brass band people as well, because I'm not that person at all. But you have two of two of the most informed brass band people I've ever met uh, here on a call with you. So what questions do you have? What can we do to help you that fits in a nice tight five minute span? OK, what can you do to help me? OK, um, you can introduce me to as many people as you possibly can. Um, you can tell them to look us up on Facebook because I want to get to know them. I'm not interested in selling on Facebook. We never will sell on Facebook. And, and although th Theoretically, you could buy online. I don't think people will, and I don't think they should, if you want an honest opinion. What, I, what they should do is find out more and try. Um, I'd like invites to people's band practices. Um, I'd like to go and visit people. I'd like to find these people. Um, two reasons. One, I'm going to enjoy the rehearsal. The other thing is, as well, is if I get invited, please let me bring a cornet. I promise I'll sit on the back bench, and I promise I'll put a mute in the whole time because Aaron wasn't impressed. Um, so <laughs> if I sit on the back, I'm quite happy. And although I, I play trumpet and my job is to scream over the top of rock bands, don't put me on soprano because I have no hope at all on playing an EFA. I just wanted to be known that he was invited back. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I did say you're welcome anytime, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, but it, but <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't offended. But that was coupled with bring some instruments with you, please. <laughs> <laughs> No, that was only the first time. Now it's now it's your you are more than welcome to be a part of the band. You know, we are, I guess, in technicality, we are your local band. So you're more than welcome to join us at any point. The, the wonderful part about it, and it's been all the bands I've been to, the welcome is fantastic. And the reason the welcome is fantastic is because although I've been out for a few years, doesn't make any difference. You slot back in straight away. Um, we've all got the same mentality. Uh, and I'm still a musician, which is the carry on, um, which has been quite useful from that point of view. A lot of your. In England, a cornet player is a cornet player. Over here, a cornet player is normally a trumpet player, um, and they do both. So that's quite useful as well. Um, 
the amount of times I've been asked to go back to the car to get my trumpet out, which, trust me, it might be a Geneva, but it's beaten up. Um, it falls off the stage all the time. It's obviously in the overhead compartment all the time in a plane. Um, but the amount of times they want to try that as well um, has been interesting to see. Um, but, um, no, I would just like to meet everybody. I'm going to be at NABA. Um, I'm going to be at quite a few of the shows. I haven't got a schedule yet, but I'm going to post the schedule up. Um, I'm also going to come up with a way um, for people to try the instruments around the country, because the difficult part at the present moment is obviously I'm right down in Naples and someone suddenly says, you know, I'm a thousand miles away and I want to try euphonium. Well, I've got to get it to you. So uh, I've got to make that work. And we've got a few ideas which we're going to announce fairly soon, which will help. Well, that's awesome. Hey, we're, we're good. We can we can wrap this. And Simon never has to speak to me again. When do, when do we have to wrap it? Hold on. Sorry. Is that, is that, is that, yeah, sorry. And don't worry. And, you know, for all those people who are like, we would love to meet him and or, you know, want to ch chat with you. We'll put links and stuff like that in the descriptions and the in emails and stuff. You'll be able to get a hold of Simon if you'd want to um, and all that sort of a thing. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for our chat today, though. Thank we you appreciate very much it. Indeed. And I'm, I might turn up at your rehearsal soon. I'll just give you a warning in advance. Hey, we got a concert tomorrow night. What do you want me to play? No, you don't want me to play. No, you've missed too many rehearsals at this point. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry <laughs> <in> my life. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, Amy, Tony, it's been great seeing you all again. For sure. Miss you all.